ora and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners, the Auckland Faculty. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler and today I'm talking to Dr. Cheryl Buhe about borderline personality disorder. Cheryl is an Otago Medical School graduate and a fellow of the Royal Australia and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists. She is working for White Matter DHB in mental health services as a primary care liaison psychiatrist, providing specialist support to the fortunate GP practices within the West Auckland area. She's involved in general practice teaching and is a contributor to the Auckland Regional Health Pathways. Welcome, Cheryl. Hi, Louise. Thank you for having me. Borderline personality is a relatively common disorder that we see in general practice and can be time-consuming and sometimes unrewarding. So today we're going to discuss the clues to diagnosis, investigation and management tips, which will hopefully make these patients more straightforward to manage and also more rewarding. So Cheryl, can we please start with a definition of borderline personality disorder? To start with, I just want to say that all of us have personality traits. You know, we are all human beings and we all have our, you know, different personalities. However, personality disorders are a group of mental health disorders when these personality traits impair a person's functioning. So this is a distinct group of um, of symptoms that impair a person's life. And according to um, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, so that's lists our criteria for the several mental health disorders. Personality disorders are an enduring pattern of inner experience and behavior that deviates markedly from the expectations of the person's culture. And it's manifested in at least two areas. So a person's emotions, their thoughts, their interpersonal functioning and impulse control. And this pattern is inflexible and affects a broad range of situations in terms of their personal and um, social interactions. It impacts on a person's functioning and the pattern is uh, seen as stable and of long duration. And the onset is, you know, starts around early adolescence or early adulthood. And it's not better accounted for by another mental health disorder, an effect of a substance or a medical condition such as head trauma. So borderline personality is a type of personality disorder, like what Louise mentioned, is hard to manage in, you know, in primary care and even specialist services. And criteria for this, it, you need to m- meet at least five or more of the following criteria that the person avoids real or imagined abandonment. And that does not include, you know, suicidal threats or self-harm behavior. Their interpersonal relationships are unstable, are intense. So lots of, you know, it's often on relationships, you're a per- another person is idealized and then quickly devalued. So um, that's, a, uh, that's one of the criteria. The person has um, an unstable self-image or sense of self. They can be impulsive in at least, you know, two areas that can be potentially self-damaging. So it could be spending, you know, engaging in sexual activity, substance use, reckless driving, binge eating. So again, this criteria does not include suicidal or self-harming behavior. One criteria is, um, you know, chronic suicidal thoughts or making gestures or threats to suicide or self-harming behavior. Their um, emotions are um, can be dysregulated, so they can change from being low to irritable or anxious and 
And these fluctuations can be intense and can be uh, can last within a few hours and rarely more than a few days. Other criteria is they, they can feel empty in themselves. They have difficult difficulty controlling their anger and they can get paranoid at times um, in relation to stressful situations or they can have dissociative symptoms where you feel detached to, you know, from yourself or your surroundings. So those are the, the main criteria and you meet um, the diagnosis of that type of personality disorder if you have five or more of those. So in the general population, Cheryl, how common is borderline personality disorder? In in my practice, I seem to have more females than males. Yes. Is this common? Yes, it's that's right. I mean, to put in context, personality disorders um, occur in about 15% of the adult population. And borderline personality disorder specifically, you can um, find this in about 2.5% of the general population. 10% of psychiatric outpatients and up to 25% of psychiatric inpatients. And borderline personality disorder accounts for about 50% of all persons with personality disorder. So it is very common. It is more common in females. So there's a three to one ratio of female to male, and it's highly comorbid with other mental health conditions as well. So that, you know, substance use, uh, depression, bipolar disorder, anxiety disorders. So um, it's often, you know, it's uncommon to find it in isolation. So you have a lot of comorbidity associated with it. Talking about etiology now, are there any known theories of etiology or definite patterns of etiology? Yeah, so the biological, um, etiological factors include, you know, any abnormalities in the emotional regulation system in our brain. So any disorders uh, impacting on the amygdala, the hippocampus, our orbitofrontal um, cortex, because um, these help regulate our emotions. Um, and also there's you know, significant environmental factors. So if you grow up in a socially um, invalidating environment, or if you've um, experienced significant trauma, and it's you know it says that up to about eighty-seven percent of those with borderline personality disorder has suffered childhood trauma, um, and it's not just sexual trauma; it's any you know form of abuse, neglect, um, parental loss, um, any abrupt or traumatic separation. So moving a lot, moving homes, moving schools. So these are significant risk factors. And, you know, personality disorders and substance use amongst first degree relatives are also common. So it's uh, not uncommon for mothers to be depressed while they're raising their children or their fathers to be detached. So, so if you look at it in terms of a person's predisposition, it's good to look at these, you know, biological and psychosocial factors um, when we're trying to formulate or try to explain why a person is presenting this way at this time. And intervening early, I suppose, when we see a depressed mother or a dysfunctional family, obviously with small children. Yes, Mm. definitely. And that's when you can mobilize all the, you know, all the resources in the community. Um, And there are mental health resources available as well for parents, um, for children of parents with mental health conditions. So it's just good to bear that in mind. How do these patients often present to healthcare settings? So they can present in several ways. Like in general practice, they can just, you know, present for any medical conditions, any, you know, their, you know, whatever they're um, experiencing at the time uh, for a routine checkup. Um, they can present if they're in crisis, if there's acute stressors or 
they've recently self-harmed. Um, so they can, pre- or they, they can present for a primarily, you know, for anxiety or depression. So, you know, there's lots of possible ways they can present um, in primary care. Thinking now about assessment, what are your top questions, Cheryl, when considering this diagnosis? And do you have any screening questions that you find particularly useful? So in general practice, I guess, you know, you can see a person as a one-off or you might be suspicious that there might be some of these borderline features if you've known them over a period of time. But it is good to, to try and elicit, you know, the you know, find out how many of the criteria they do meet. And I use the mnemonic praise. You know, if I'm stuck and I'm in a consult, I can't remember the criteria. It's helpful to think of that, that mnemonic where P stands for, you know, persecutory ideation. You know, people don't like me. They hate me. Um, R means relationships are unstable. A is for affective instability. I is for impulsivity. S is suicidal ideation and D is for emptiness. So it's not, doesn't cover all the criteria, but it's a start. And, and then um, that will just prompt you to explore um, these other criteria when you're in a consult with someone. So, you know, some of the question you might want to ask would be, you know, what sort of person are you in relationships? Are you sensitive to rejection? Are you worried about being abandoned? Do you often have mood swings or find that your moods can shift from being happy or sad in a matter of minutes or hours? Would you say you're an impulsive person? And then you can explore that a bit further. You know, has this ever gotten you into trouble? So like what I mentioned before, it can include, you know, drug use, sex, driving, binge eating. Um, You can ask, you know, how often do you think about suicide and explore that depending on what their response is. You know, why do you self-harm? Because self-harm is often to um, manage difficult emotions that they would rather feel physical pain than emotional pain, or they might self-harm because that might be a way that their support or their loved one won't abandon them. Um, And you can ask also, you know, do you feel empty in yourself? Do you have difficulty controlling your anger? And I think with practice, you can you can develop ways of how you can elicit, you know, these features um, in a non non confronting way and in a caring way. So it's just good to have a, a mnemonic and just with practice that will come naturally with time. You mentioned earlier in your introduction about functioning across multiple areas. So I suppose that's important to Yes. So, so in an assessment, so you want to know if you're looking at borderline personality criteria, you explore that, but you also want to know, you know, how severe are these symptoms? How impaired are they in their functioning? So, you know, with their work, with their daily lives, um, you know, looking after their dependents and you have to explore risks as well. And thinking broadly, it's not about, not just about suicide, or, you know, hurt, you know, self-harm. It's also self-cares. Are they an organizational risk if they have a high profile job? Um, you know, risk to, you know, child protection issues. You know, are they self-harming with little children around? You have to take all those into account. Um, are they looking after themselves? Are they showering? Have they bed bound and only showering once a week? You know, that's really important to explore. And exclude, you know, explore comorbid conditions. So do ask about substance use, ask about their mood and anxiety, because that will tailor your treatment plan. Um, and, and while, you know, they're in consult, it's good to um, 
exclude medical causes as well. So depending on the physical health history and physical exam, to just make sure there's no other organic contributors to their mood instability or how they're feeling. So you mentioned um, medical conditions, and I always like to think of other mm. differential diagnoses as such. So what medical conditions particularly do we need to exclude and what physical exam would you be doing? So I think in general, you know, you would do your, you know, routine checkup. So general well-being. And there is no definite medical test to diagnose borderline personality. But, you know, some of the features like um, impulsivity, mood changes, you know, the common ones that you want to exclude are any neurological conditions. It could range from, you know, an infection or a trauma, or is it a stroke or malignancy, or is there an underlying, you know, hormonal abnormality, like such as, you know, thyroid um, function disorders, or is it related to estrogen levels? But these causes will be guided by what they present with as well, and their symptom screen when you do um, conduct your, you know, physical history and exam. In baseline blood tests, I suppose. Oh, yes. Yes, definitely. So, full blood count, perhaps. Mm. So, we're considering borderline personality disorder in our patient. Is this a diagnosis that we should be making in primary care, or do you think it needs specialist input? So, that's a tricky one because, you know, if you know a a patient you've seen for many years and you go, I think this person has borderline personality. So, you might have been able to elicit those those criteria anyway. But borderline personality disorder is best diagnosed by a mental health professional. And this will, you know, this is following a detailed clinical assessment. So getting the history from the patient, getting collateral from their supports, from, you know, their GP, um, and looking through old mental health notes. So it is not uncommon for, you know, for a referral to specialist mental health um, to be made to, to come to a diagnosis. But, you know, there's also I know there's mental health providers in the community, in the private sector, and they are able to make this diagnosis as well. So in terms of referring to specialist mental health, you know, the public mental health um, service, it's usually if there are moderate to severe symptoms and if there is significant distress or significant um, impairment in, in their functioning, definitely if there are safety concerns or, you know, if if say you know your G, the GP is querying you know does is there another comorbid mental health condition and usually you know do they have a bipolar illness or is this borderline personality and you can't really quite tease out which is which um, and usually we get referrals to the specialist mental health service if community interventions have been unsuccessful so they you know they might have seen the counselors or tried you know, short, ther- you know, short course therapies or have, have seen the health coach or health improvement fa- practitioner without any improvement in their presentation. So they can present to us in those ways. In the introduction, I mentioned that these patients can often be tricky and unrewarding in general practice and relationships can be difficult to maintain in a healthy way. I wonder if you have any tricks or tips to help us with managing these patients. They are tricky. <laughs> they are. They do take a lot of time and resources. And so it is really worth, um, you know, having just a framework on how to, um, how to look after this group of patients um, in primary care. And the important thing is, you know, just 
try and maintain a therapeutic alliance and and work with them towards their recovery. Um, just maintain your you know honesty, reliability, and maintain your professional demeanor, and also be you know set the necessary limits and consistent boundaries because they can be demanding. You know they will want last minute appointments or they'll they'll request all sorts of things, and you know it's and it's hard to meet that demand at times. Also be um, prepared to tolerate negative feelings, you know, and they can be very angry, very aggressive, and it would be hard to be in a consult when that's occurring. So, you know, one thing to, to note is that you need to look after yourself, monitor your what we call counter-transference feelings, and that means the emotions that this person elicits in you and try and understand why you're feeling a certain way about this person, because you might unconsciously assume a role of a parent or a person's rescuer, and that might not be the best way to proceed when caring for this person as well. And try and avoid what we call splitting between clinicians and, you know, treatments. And because it is not uncommon for patients with borderline personality to play one clinician against another and confuse care. So that can happen with you know, someone's under specialist mental health, they'll say one thing, but they'll tell the GP another thing, or they'll tell the therapist one thing, and then they'll tell their prescriber, you know, their medication prescriber, another thing. So it's good to communicate with all the stakeholders involved. So you can have a coordinated approach. And also as part of looking after you discuss, you know, in supervision, in peer group, in your practice team meetings, because it might be that you need to share care with another GP in that practice so that you're not carrying all the load or that your caseload doesn't have all the borderline personality patients and you know no one else is seeing them in the practice. So that's something to consider in, this, in these sorts of situations. No, some great points there. And I know my patients, um, we do have some strict criteria around who looks after them because we have had some of those issues. Yeah. And- we have negotiated contracts around appointment times and appointment duration and appointment costs. And um, it works relatively well, actually, if we all yeah. agree things and set quite clear boundaries. So, and, um, and it's including also, um, how do you communicate? Um, you know, not giving your personal email or, you know, your personal phone, how can they contact you? Because then they'll try to contact you in the middle of the night and that's not appropriate. So, yeah, it, but it can be tricky. <laughs> so just thinking now for a moment about crisis management, because these patients do seem, tend to, in my experience, come into crisis quite often. I wonder if you can talk us through crisis management. Yeah, with crisis management, as I you know mentioned earlier, you know this is one of the indications of you know why they're referred to specialist mental health services, and I think it is important to you know refer to us if you. If you have concerns regarding risks, like if there's active self-harming, they've self-harmed recently, there are any risky, other risky behaviors, they're suicidal, they're lacking support, or they're hopeless. Because it is often easy to just get into that mode of, oh, it's another self-harm, you know, and, and you just put it aside. But it is important to note that with this group of people, they can be successful in ending their lives. So about 8 to 10% commit suicide often after multiple attempts. 
and that increases to up to 35% the more of the borderline personality criteria they meet. That's why it is important to know, is this, do they meet one or two traits of borderline personality or do they, have they got all of them? Um, and that increases their risk to self. And when there is risk concerns, we do need to, um, they, some of them need hospitalization, even for a brief period. Um, some would need respite. So it depends on their comorbidities, their level of insight, you know, who's at home, who's supporting them. So it is um, important to um, get mental health involved. And at least you've shared that risk as well. And it's you're not holding it all in, in primary care. And look, moving forward from the acute crisis, we can look at a management plan of if it happens again, you know, what are the things that we could do? Because it might not, you know, you might need to do a few calming strategies first and, and review or, you know, what are the rules of engagement in terms of accessing respite? Because the other side of that is prolonged hospital stays are, are also not helpful because it inf- reinforces, you know, the self-harming behavior or the threat. So it is tricky, but Specialist mental health, we have our experienced clinicians, psychologists who can who can help formulate that plan alongside the patient. So it's not something that we just come up and go, hey, here is your plan. We we do it collaboratively. And also, you know, if they're frequent presenters to primary care with threatening behavior or aggression, and it's just too much to for primary care to to try and grapple through, that's when we can help you know, we can help with the management of that as well. So you've mentioned management, Cheryl. I'm just thinking about therapy and drugs. What therapy has been shown to be useful and is there a role for drugs? Yes, yes for both. <laughs> so in terms of therapy, we'll start with that. Um, there's evidence based for, you know, individual group or family therapy. And there are different types of therapies that are evidence-based treatments for borderline personality. So you've got your psychodynamic therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is available in, in PHO land. Um, there's dialectical behavioral therapy, which we provide in specialist mental health. And there's also some community resources, I think in particular in the addiction sector, and also for those with history of sexual trauma under ACC sensitive claim. And there's you know, cognitive analytic therapy and behavioral therapy. So I'm sure you've heard of CBT, but I'll talk about dialectical behavioral therapy, which is our gold standard therapy for borderline personality disorder. So it is um, it is formulated by um, Marsha Linehan, and there are four different components. The first component is your one-to-one therapy sessions, which lasts for about an hour once a week, and it looks at you know maladaptive behaviors and uh, reinforcing helpful skills that they learn in the second component, which is the skills training group, um, where, you know, they have group sessions once a week for about two hours, and they look at what they call DIME, so D-I-M-E, which is an, uh, an acronym for, you know, distress tolerance, interpersonal effectiveness, mindfulness, and emotional regulation. So are the, those are the four things that the training group covers. Um, there's also, um, out of hours telephone contact between the patient and the therapist. So this is brief and it helps um, avoid self-harm behavior. And the fourth component is consultation and supervision group amongst the therapists and the 
skills trainers. So this is a therapy that, you know, it will be good if we can access it more, but hopefully that's something for, for the future. Um, but DBT is um, what's really helpful for this group of patients. Um, and looking at medications, so just to be mindful about um, the risk of overdose, so just prescribe with caution um, because of you know the self-harm behavior, the impulsivity. You don't want to give them three months worth of everything. In some cases, the dispensing of meds can be twice weekly, weekly. So, and it depends on a person's risk risk profile and your rapport with them as well. So if you've known, you know what they're like, you might alter your prescribing, but someone who might present to you as a one-off, you know, just be cautious and or keep it in mind. So depending on comorbid mental health conditions and their key symptoms, that will guide your prescribing. So if they've got depressive symptoms, there's role of antidepressants for antidepressants. Um, if there's unstable mood, you, you know, you might look at mood stabilizers, there's anger or rage. Um, you know, you may look at antidepressants, mood stabilizers, and even antipsychotics. And antipsychotics are also used if you've got your, you know, your short-lived psychotic um, symptoms. And if the paranoia gets a bit more intense, that might help to dampen the intensity of those symptoms. And it's also important to, to treat um, comorbid substance use. So that would be, you know, assessing their level of motivation to change. And um, because, you, you know, it's not something that can, you know, they can quickly alter, you know, when you ask them to do that. So you might want to ask them to engage with the community alcohol and drug service so you can manage that side of things concurrently as well as the personality treatment you know, features and, you know, whatever else is going on. I wonder if we can just go back a moment to DBT. Mm. It's relatively new. And how available is it within both the public and private sector currently? So DBT is provided in specialist mental health, but um, getting in there is, it is difficult because uh, like in West Auckland, it is offered through the recovery team. So Patients who have complex mental health conditions are, you know, severely impaired and are considered high risk. So they have, they might have comorbid, you know, depression, OCD and other things happening. Um, And even getting into that team is quite hard. So say entry into that part of the service is a challenge because not everyone gets to um, be under the recovery team. And also you know, the availability of therapists, the waiting times, and that's not a new um, issue. So, but it is provided uh, through specialist mental health. They have DBT, what they call DBT light skills group through CADS. So that's called the managing mood group. So if you've got substance use and borderline traits, they can participate in that group. And you can have that concurrently with CADS counseling. But then again, you know, there's that availability and you have to wait on a list to, to join and be motivated to join because it is a closed group with only a couple of entry points through the, um, through the whole um, therapy session. And there are some private providers as well, but that is, you know, there's an associated cost and you have to be motivated to do this type of work 
and also pay for the sessions. And uh, so that's a main challenge. But I have seen some patients who do want to work on their psychological issues and they're happy to do that. And as I mentioned before, there's um, community providers that ACC will help subsidize for, and that's for um, uh, you know, DBT skills group sessions, but you have to have an approved sensitive claim through ACC. So that's, you know, but then what if there's no history of sexual trauma? So there is a gap. There is a gap there. And I know that there's PHO therapies available, but, you know, you can do four to six sessions. That's probably not enough. So, you know, that's something that we can hopefully expand on in the coming years with more funding. More funding. (laughs) More funding. Yes. All right. Prognosis for these people. Tell us how they do in the long term. So in the long term, so it depends on, on the person. Not surprising that your prognosis is better if you're, you've got good premorbid level of functioning and you don't have any other comorbid conditions. Some positive prognostic factors also from literature mention if there's no history or, of sexual or physical abuse or if there's no comorbid substance abuse. They say another positive prognostic factor is they've never been to prison and that they've had a high IQ and educational achievement. So at which, you know, the high educational achievement, you know, makes sense because perhaps their illness is not severe enough that has impacted their trajectory in life. But I do see a few young adults, you know, 18, early 20s who have significant, you know, borderline features and they're really struggling and it is worth investing early because, you know, and, I, and from experience, we have people under our mental health service who's, who's been under the service for years, um, use up a lot of resources, not just mental health, but emergency department, police, you know, we get called regularly. And so it is worth investing in that group while they're young, where they can get the skills and they can move ahead in life and live a, a fulfilling life. All right. Thank you for that. To conclude our podcast today, what would your take-home messages be for our listeners, please, Cheryl? So take-home messages. So borderline personality disorder can be difficult and challenging. And that's, you know, that's a given because it's time-consuming and use a lot of resources. Important to note that there's high comorbidity with other mental health conditions. So do screen for those. Take suicidal threats seriously. As I mentioned about, you know, risk, especially, um, you know, the threats can, they can be successful in, um, you know, ending their lives, even if they are frequent self-harmers and haven't made an attempt previously. Um, Do consider referring to specialist mental health to help contain the risks, maybe for diagnostic clarification or just having a management plan in place so they can be, they can thrive in the community. Look after yourselves. So discussing your supervision, your peer group and practice team meetings and look after you in terms of, you know, make sure you're not burnt out and exhausted because you will need support as well. So the kit, yeah, you, you need as much support <laughs> as the person you're looking after. So those are my key 
key messages for today. Wonderful. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for having me, Louise. Thank you. All right. So if you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPD points for listening to this podcast, please fill in the Reflection of Learning form found at goodfellowunit.org. You'll also find a list of resources and a wonderful PDF document that Cheryl's put together for us on our website. Thank you for listening.